So we're starting a new series this morning. We're going to spend the next um, six weeks or so in the book of um, Nehemiah. And we are studying this. We're going to study this book together with the question, how do we get involved in what God is doing around us? How do we get involved in what God is doing around us? Some of you may know that I'm involved in helping train church planters um, here in Ireland. And there's a really consistent question I get from people just before they're about to go plant a church. And it's actually an unusual question, uh, but it's really, really consistent. And the question is this, Andy, what do you do with the really critical emails? And I'm always like, what What do you you mean? And they're like, well, I'm about to go try and plant a church, and I guess part of that will hopefully eventually end up with me standing in front of a room full of people and opening the Bible and trying to make some sense of the scriptures for people's lives. And like, you know, most people I know that have done that before or that do that regularly get really critical emails. And so how do you process that? I'm a bit nervous about that. And um, I tell them that actually I'm a, I lead a church full of liars who never email me critical stuff. Um, and it's true. Like, uh, not the liars, but, well, at least I hope not that bit. Um, the reality is, I've, like, I've never, ever received an email like that from, from you lot. And that's not an invitation, by the way. Um, but I do get some, I do get feedback. And one of the most consistent bits of feedback I get on what I do up here regularly trying to make sense of the scriptures for all of us is some version of this. Andy, that was so inspiring. Like that was, it was exciting. It's inspiring. I'm like, wow, God's really like that and is doing that. But what on earth do I actually do? Like I I kind of am that guy that's not, uh, how do I say this? I'm not very practical very often right? And um, that's not deliberate. I'm just not very good at being practical. And I tend to live in a, like a slightly bigger picture kind of place. And so this summer, um, when Stu was kind of transitioning into the executive pastor role, and we were planning, for teaching series and all that sort of stuff, I said, so go in and have a think and pray about what we should do in the autumn. And he came back and he said, Andy, I really feel like we need to um, teach the book of Nehemiah, and we need to get really practical about how this actually works. And I went, I, I hear you. I know. And so I am prepared for uh, emails over the next few weeks as I do everything I can to try to make this as practical as possible, knowing that it's a little bit outside of my own comfort zone and my normal space. But here's what you need to understand, okay? There is a problem when it comes to trying to be really, really practical. And the problem is this. Jesus is alive. Like, really alive. Like, something says, the rest of you are like, I'm not sure about that, Andy. Why, why is that significant? Well, you see, when it comes to getting really, really practical, you can teach A plus B equals C, 1 plus 1 equals 2. You can, you can do that. Um, but it's really tricky when it comes to following Jesus because the minute you say to somebody, this is how it works, Jesus says something else or does something else. And it's a little bit frustrating because here's the reality. There is no formula because Jesus is alive. Whenever you bump into formulas, typically what you're finding is self-help. Any of you read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life? One of you. The rest of you are like, I'm not admitting that in here, Andy. Um, Any of you read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? This is maybe just an age thing in the room. Some of you are like, yes, I know who Stephen Covey is. No, I don't know who Jordan Peterson is. Um, Those books are, they're both, I think, good books, um, 
They're helpful books, but they're 1 plus 1 equals 2. They're A plus B equals C, and they're self-help. And both of them try to help you understand that if you do this, this will happen. That works in the realm of self-help. It's really hard in the realm of following Jesus. Because the minute I say to you, if you do this, Jesus will do that, he goes, well, I might do something else. And it becomes challenging. So I want to caveat everything we're going to say in this series with if you are not intimately involved in conversation and pursuit and listening to Jesus, then you're going to end up disappointed and want to write me an email that didn't work. Because you're responsible. It's a Stephen Covey thing. You're responsible. And many of you will have heard me say this before, that the best prayers you will ever pray are questions. The best prayers you will ever pray are questions. God, what are you doing? God, what do you see there? God, what are you saying? God, how should I respond to this? Do you want me to do something here? What's going on over there? The best prayers we can pray are questions. And so as we jump into this, we're going to try and get as practical as we possibly can, but there is no way for me to faithfully teach the scriptures without provoking you to follow and listen to Jesus. If it's formulaic, it's not alive, it's religion. Is that okay? I'm just creating space for me to not be practical. Anyway, so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to um, look at this book called Nehemiah. I told a friend I was teaching uh, Nehemiah, that we're about to launch a series of Nehemiah this week, church leader not far from here, and he went, oh, the book about the short man. And I said, I said, he knows. I said what do you mean? He says, that's the book about the short man. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, Nehemiah. A terrible joke, right? It's like terrible, terrible. Paul, Paul. Somebody's like, people are like, I still don't get it. I still don't get it. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad. Anyway, um, so we're going to use the book about the short man as our guide. Um, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite literary genres is uh, biography or autobiography. Um, when it comes to the world-defining people and events, typically there is tons of commentary about things that have defined and shaped the world or people that have defined and shaped the world. And you can read lots of people's thoughts about them. You can read lots of people's thoughts about things that have happened. But there is nothing quite like reading someone's own reflections about what they've lived through. I find it unbelievably insightful. I find things there that I don't see in commentary. Uh, just before we got married, for uh, the 10 weeks before our wedding, I was sitting on a sofa with a broken leg, and uh, I read Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. Anybody read it? should just be titled Flipping Long Read. Um, but it was just incredible, absolutely incredible. I've read lots of uh, history and commentary on the apartheid and everything that kind of surrounded Nelson Mandela's life, but there was nothing quite like reading his own reflections on that thing. And you need to understand that about Nehemiah. This book that we're, we're reading is uh, not just some weird uh, Old Testament thing. It's actually an ancient journal. This book, Nehemiah, is an ancient journal. These are Nehemiah's own reflections on what it was like to live through and be at the center of a move of God. And there's tons, I think, that we can learn from him and how he went about 
his life. So let me, let me read Nehemiah 1 for you. He starts by telling everyone that it's him. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. It's <laughs> a great name, isn't it? Hakaliah. There's old Hakaliah, boy. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Uh, this is what he says about himself. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Breathe life onto these words. We long to hear you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder when was the last time you saw something that made your heart ache? Like something that like, like moved you deeply. Josh, throw up the first photo. Any of you recognize this? Wow. It looked so beautiful, didn't it? This became that. And I remember the day after that happened. Josh, throw up the next one. I remember the day after the photo on the left happened. I was driving into Belfast. And William Crowley was curating, I guess, a conversation remembering this building. And an elderly man phoned in. And he used to work in what was the former bank buildings. And, and he worked, do you see the semicircle over on the left-hand side, that big window? He, he worked just on the other side of that big window. You can kind of just see it on the left-hand side of the fire engine there. And he worked in there, and he began to talk about what it was like when he worked in there. And he did something every lunchtime that initially sounded really weird. So he used to watch out the window, and there was a lady that would walk down the road and wait on a bus. And he used to watch her every day, just stand in the window and watch the same lady get the same bus at the same time in the same place every day. And he was kind of captivated for her. Truth be told, he really fancied her, right? And... Eventually, one day, 
he plucked up the courage as she was coming to get her bus to walk down the stairs and across the street and he asked her out and she said yes. And they began to date and they then got married and uh, he was phoning 63 years later from this moment. And sadly, she'd passed away 18 months earlier, but they were, they were married for about 61 years and had children together and grandchildren together. And as he relayed this story of the significance for them every day walking through Belfast, looking up at the window and where the bus stop used to be, his heart was broken thinking about what had, what had happened. What you've just read about here in the book of Nehemiah is something very, very similar. As these people arrive from Jerusalem and Nehemiah says, how's it going over there? And they're like, the city is a mess and the gates have been burned. You need a little bit of Bible history to fully understand what's going on here. If you go back into Genesis Whenever sin enters the world and God's perfect creation and connection between people and people with each other and people with the planet, whenever that gets broken, God decides, I'm not okay leaving things broken. And so he begins this, this plan that starts with, with kind of with Abraham, where he says, Abraham, I know you have no kids and you're an old man, but I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to become the father of a nation. And that nation is going to get a, a land, and that land is going to get a city. And from this people and that place, I am going to bring a savior to the world. And through the rest of the Old Testament, you see that story unfolding. As this people called Israel is, is kind of created. And then they end up, for any of you that know the story, they end up in slavery in Egypt. And then this other mad, murderous failure is wandering through the wilderness looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And he sees a tree that's on fire but not being consumed. And God speaks to him and says, I've heard my people's cry. It is time for you to go and lead them out of slavery into a land that I am going to give them. And of course, Moses goes, and he has this crazy confrontation with Pharaoh, and there's plagues, and there's all this sort of stuff, and then we get Passover, and eventually Pharaoh goes, get out of here, and by the way, take our fortunes with you. And so Moses leads this people out of Egypt, and then the Red Sea thing happens, and then they get across the Red Sea, and then they have this crazy moment. Any of you that know the story, they, they basically end up confronting Moses, going, we we preferred slavery. We don't really like it out here. We preferred slavery, and the consequences of that kind of are none of those people actually get to see the land that was promised, and so they wander around for 40 years. Moses eventually dies. God speaks to Joshua and says, it's time for you to occupy this land, and so we get Jericho, and then they, there's all these battles, and all this sort of stuff happens, and they get this they, they get this land, and then fast forward a few generations, and then you get this king called David, and God says to David, it's time for me to, to give you a city, and so David takes Jerusalem, and then the, David wants to build a house for God where he can actually come and dwell among the people, but again, there's kind of a theme with the people of God. David's a bit of a messed up failure, and he sleeps with somebody who's not his wife and has her husband killed, and God's like, well, it's not actually appropriate for you to build my house, but your son is going to build me a house, and so his son Solomon builds his temple, and God comes, and, and it's the fulfillment of so much that is promised as this land and this city and this place called the temple, and then, of course, as is kind of common for the people of God, they get kind of distracted and seduced by other gods and other things, and they eventually end up with their city and their temple and their land being completely ransacked 
by another empire and they're taken off into slavery again. And this is where we find Nehemiah, essentially a slave in a foreign empire. And yet the affection with which they hold Jerusalem and the temple and this city, I cannot, I cannot um, fully explain to you the significance of this city and this place in people like Nehemiah's mind and their heart. It's kind of like our weird relationship with flags on steroids. Right? This is, this is what's going on. And verse 2 says that Nehemiah's brother arrives. And Nehemiah goes over and says, Hey, what's going on over there? How is it in our home? And whenever he finds out the state of Jerusalem, it breaks his heart. The text says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah asks a question. It's a really simple question. What's going on over there? And that question unleashes heaven upon him. I wonder, when was the last time you wept about something? Like, I don't mean that thing we do, you know, that I've got something in my eye. I mean, like, bawled your eyes out, snot over the floor, heartbroken about a situation or a circumstance. I wonder how many of you are in here this morning and you would say, when it comes to these types of conversation, I'm just not a crier, really. It's somewhat of a masculine phenomenon here in Northern Ireland, but certainly not exclusive to, to men. Um, whenever people tell me that, I, I usually want to ask a question that sometimes I'm brave enough to ask and sometimes I'm not. Usually when somebody says to me, I'm not really a crier, Andy, I want to say, what are you afraid of? Because there's this uh, thing, particularly us blokes, and sorry if I'm giving you a hard time this morning, but it's particularly blokes. There's this thing we love to do, and it is to create the illusion of control. To tell ourselves that we're in control. Of course we're absolutely not, but sometimes life can go a little bit easier and a little bit better for us if we can convince ourselves that that's actually, that's actually true. And so whenever things are going on or those terrible things called emotions begin to happen, we're like, mm -mm, not me. I've got this. I'm under control. And I'm not going to go there. You know, there's something that I've noticed in my life and the lives of others. And it's true for every single personality type you can imagine. When God really gets a hold of somebody, like really gets a hold of them, usually at some point in that journey, there's a moment that involves tears and snot. Now, it's not the only marker, and we're certainly not aiming for it, you know. You pray for somebody and they don't cry, and you're like, damn it, it didn't work. Of course, it's not, it's, we're, not, we're not aiming for that. I'm just offering you an observation that when I observe people, 
and particularly like life-defining calling moments, usually there is some sort of emotion that feels in the moment a little bit overwhelming. And one of the ways for us to actually keep ourselves from fully stepping into the things of God is to decide ahead of time things that we will never do. So I'm never going to be that guy that cries and has snot. It's just never going to be me. What if your destiny is on the other side of that? What if there's something about your heart being broken that actually qualifies your call? It's kind of, I don't know if you've ever experienced proper heartbreak, like where, where you hear about something. Some of you maybe experienced this this morning as a vet shared that story. Or something in you aches. And we have a tendency, particularly in our culture, to go, whoa, 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 didn't sign up for that. I'm going to think about the news or the football. I'm going to think about what I've got on for lunch. I'm like, there's stuff happening in me, so I need to get that away because that's going to be embarrassing. And we cut off what God is actually trying to do. Watch what Nehemiah does. This is really interesting. Think about your own life. I certainly feel very convicted about mine. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah doesn't run away from what's happening. He sits in it. He doesn't try to get himself tidied up and back under control. He yields to what's going on in his heart. And he sits in the pain for days. Any of you read the news? Watch the news every day without me? Have you got like a rhythm where like it's like, it's like a daily thing? You know, For me, it's most evenings I'm like, I, I read the news. And usually by the time I get to the end of the news, I'm, I'm a wee bit uh, down, a wee bit overwhelmed. And uh, my solution is sport. And I just scroll to the bottom of the page and I click on sport and that's a wonderful distraction. Right? It helps me get out of like the mess that's, that's going on in the world. What if, what if we were able to sit in the pain for a day or two? To not rush through it, not run away from it, but to actually go, okay, God, I think maybe you're doing something and I need to, I need to stay here. I need to stay here. Recently, I heard a pretty well-known church leader say that it's really important you understand that God didn't design you to know what's happening in Ethiopia or Yemen. God didn't design you to know what's going on in Russia. God didn't design you to know what's happening in London or Cardiff or Cork or Galway. God didn't design you to know what's happening some other place other than where you are. Where that boundary is, I have no idea. Like, is that, like, God didn't design you to know what's happening in Belfast, or God didn't design you to know what's happening on the other side of Lisburn. God didn't design you to know what's going on in Balnehens or Moira. I have no idea. All I know is I'm really glad Nehemiah did not subscribe to that worldview of God. Nehemiah says to these travelers, what's going on over there? And they answer the question, and his heart is broken. The first step for us to move towards 
the things of God in our life is to, with an open heart, ask the question, what's going on outside of my life? What's going on outside of me? What's going on outside of this little nuclear mess that I call my family? What's going on over there? First question, you're like, really, Andy? That's a pretty basic question. It's a really basic question that lots of us never ask. We spend our lives on what's going on with me. What's going on in my job? What's going on in my life? Nehemiah begins with the question, what's going on over there? For some of you, all of the response you need this morning is to walk to that table when we're done and say to Yvette, tell me what's going on in our city. Tell me what's going on in our city. Step one, joining in with God is asking the question with an open heart, what's going on over there? Nehemiah does something really interesting after he's gone through the mourning and the grieving and the heartbreaking moment. I think this, is, this fascinates me. I think it's verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Step one, ask the question. Step two, confess. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? J.I. Packer, the famous theologian, says this, What makes a man or woman of God is first and foremost their vision of God. What makes a man or woman of God is first and foremost their vision of God. You see, whenever you encounter God's heart for something, and you begin to be infected by it, guess what happens next? You feel utterly overwhelmed at your inadequacies to ever do anything in response to that thing. And so here we have Nehemiah. He find, he's a, remember, he's a slave working for another king, and he finds out that his city is in ruins, and God's speaking to him about doing something about that. That's impossible. It's utterly impossible. So what does he do? He remembers who God is. He reminds himself, God, you're awesome. God, you're full of power. God, you can do anything. Why is he doing that? Because he's about to move towards this thing. Step one, we open our hearts. What are you doing? What's going on? And if God captures you for something, you will feel inadequate and you will feel like it's impossible. And in that moment, we must, must, must remind ourselves who God is. When we were teaching through Isaiah 61 a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how everything flows from how you answer the question, what do I think God is like? You see, if you think God is some aloof, grumpy headmaster type waiting to catch you out for your wrongdoings and give you lines or detention, you will never move towards what he's doing in the world for fear of getting it wrong or messing it up. But if you understand that God is full of compassion and love and justice and mercy and that he longs to display his goodness on the earth for people to see, then all of a sudden you have space, maybe not lots, but some space for maybe I could be a part of that. 
if you understand that it is the least and the lost and the most broken that God loves to use to display his splendor to the world, then you have space in your mind for maybe I could be involved in this. But if your view of God is that he only uses the holy Joes and the super spiritual and the God it all together, well, Pauline Hyde can be involved, but I can't. Or whoever that person is in your mind. We all have them, right? You know those people that we're just convinced they're just way, they just get it way more than we do. You've all got them. That, like, everybody has a super Christian in their life, right? Or somebody that you know of as the super Christian. And you spend most of your life going, I'm just, I'm just not as good as them at this whole Jesus thing. And if your view of God is that he only uses those types of people, well, then you disqualify yourself before you can get involved. But if you actually understand that God loves to take those the world has written off and demonstrate the most incredible things of his kingdom in their life, then there's space for you and there's space for me. Step one, ask the question, what's going on outside of me? Step two, remind yourself of who God is. Step three, this is amazing. Verse six, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Listen to what Nehemiah says next. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Step one, ask the question. Step two, confess who God is. Step three, repent. This is so important. God's kingdom does not advance in a triumphalist, take-our-cities-for-God kind of way. For any of you that remember the Easter story, you will know that Jesus did not arrive in Jerusalem on a war horse with a sword. He came on a donkey. Who, who wants to go into battle behind a king on a donkey? This is so important. The ultimate demonstration of victory in the kingdom was a humiliating execution on something that looked like that. Whilst his followers were waiting for the heavens to be emptied of angelic hosts with swords on fire and enemies being slain, the king of kings gave himself up to be tortured and humiliated and executed for us all. The posture of the kingdom is one of humility and sacrifice and service. And what keeps us in that posture is repentance. It's as we are filled with an awareness of how we don't actually deserve to be involved. That we've already disqualified ourselves. As we, we live in an appropriate way with wow, like that's me and I'm getting to do this. And this is really consistent through the pages of Scripture. For some of you who remember Luke 5, when Jesus calls Peter for the first time, and when Peter realizes that he's being called by the Messiah, do you remember what he says? 
Get away from me, for I am a sinful man. The minute God gets your heart for something, you begin to be aware of how there should be someone else, God. There's somebody more qualified, more holy. There's somebody who gets this more than me. But, but Nehemiah understands and he just falls to his knees and he repents. And I love this. Listen to what he actually says. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He repents not only on behalf of himself, he begins to repent on behalf of a nation. There's something that happens whenever we choose to identify ourselves with the most broken and most easily judged in our society. Let me um, bring this pretty close to the knuckle maybe for a minute. Most of us are pretty sick of our political stalemate here, right? Most of us are pretty disparaging towards most of our politicians, right? What would happen if rather than sitting or standing in judgment, we began to repent on their behalf? What if when we look at the last 35 years of Northern Ireland, rather than somewhat triumphantly being able to say, well, that wasn't me, that was some other bunch of crazy people doing a bunch of crazy stuff. We went, there are people and we repent. What if we began to fall on our knees and cry out to God, God, forgive us, not just for our own stuff, but for that which infects our communities and our city and our nation. See, I think if we are to hold as a church what it is that the Lord wants to trust us with in stepping into his mission here in Lisburn, the Lagan Valley, and the surrounding areas, one of the qualifiers is that we are quick to find ourselves on our knees in repentance and not just for our own stuff, where we begin to identify with our community. And we cry out, God, forgive us. God, forgive us. God, forgive us. It's really, really interesting in Jewish thought, Noah isn't considered a hero. Isn't that funny? Why isn't Noah considered a hero or a patriarch? Because his righteousness didn't get on anyone else. Noah took himself and his little family and he put them on a boat whilst everyone else was destroyed. There's something, and if you read deeply into their lives, there's something really consistent with the Moseses and the Joshuas and even the Davids and ultimately in Jesus where they go to God on behalf of the whole. They refuse to isolate themselves as well. I wasn't part of that mess. But they identify, these are my people. God, forgive us. God, forgive us. God, forgive us. What's going on outside of me? God, remind me who you are. 
forgive me for where I or my people have become a part of the problem. And finally, and we're going to unpack this more fully next week, only then are we able to get off our knees and respond in courage. With courage. These steps that we see in Nehemiah are so critical for us that we ask the question, what's going on over there? Our hearts break. We get a bit overwhelmed. We remind ourselves who God is. We repent for where we've been part of the problem or where our people have. And then we rise and respond with courage. I'm going to invite the band up as we respond. I'm kind of aware that we are uh, stopping rather abruptly. That's because it's Nehemiah's story. In chapter 2, he just continues right here. And So next Sunday, we're going to pick up right where we are and look more deeply on how he responds and what that means for us and how we do that. But um, I want to um, create a moment for us this morning. And I'm sure... Well, maybe I'm not sure. I hope lots of that has been helpful and resonated. Um, And we could probably do some sort of response around every single question, um, but your lunch would get ruined. So I want to lean into repentance this morning as a community. And And it may well be this morning that you have stuff in your life personally that you need to repent of. That, that you know that last week, oops, just in case you were sleeping, you know that last week didn't quite go as well as you would have liked. And maybe it's been a real battle for you to get here this morning and you're sitting here feeling like a complete hypocrite. You're like, Andy, you've no idea what I was up to this last week or maybe even just last night. There's a moment of grace and mercy for you to come and go, God, remind me who I am. I repent of that. Remind me who I am. That might be you this morning, and we're going to create space for that. But, but more important, maybe not more important, bad words, as well as that, and what I think actually is important for us as a community to move to this morning is a much more corporate moment of repentance where we, as the people of God, cry out, God, forgive us for the history of this land, the recent history. I am convinced that our destiny is on the other side of repentance and not just personally but corporately. Some of you know that your hearts just break when you think about this weird wee place called Northern Ireland and you love it dearly but you know it's got issues and I want to create a moment for us to respond to that together this morning when we come up with maybe the troubles in our heads and our hearts, with maybe our current political stalemate in our heads and our hearts. Maybe this morning it's domestic violence here in our city that's in your head and your heart. And it's as we step into this moment on behalf of those that would never occur to them to repent, we say, God, forgive us. God, forgive us all. God, forgive us, pour out your mercy upon us and invite us to become part of your solution to these things. So if you're able, will you stand?
I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you just to come and uh, if it's for you if it's for our, our country if it's for your community whatever it is just come I want you to come and kneel this morning and your prayer is simply this God forgive us God forgive us and it might feel weird that you're repenting on behalf of something else or someone else but that's okay I think that's some of our privilege as God's people to actually get to be able to do that and so I'm going to pray and then I'll invite you to come as the band lead us so Holy Spirit we welcome you we welcome you and Lord as we reflect on our past we reflect on the past of our lives and that might be last night or last week as we repent on the past of this province God we don't want to shy away from the pain we don't want to run away from it and we don't want to deny it but this morning in this moment we pray God forgive us forgive us all Forgive us for the part that we've played in unjust systems. Forgive us for the part that we've played in, in harboring, dehumanizing and sectarian attitudes towards our brothers and sisters. God, forgive us for the moments we've felt better than somebody else or more deserving of your affection or your blessing. God, forgive us, we pray.